Welcome to this episode of Unpixelated Talks. I'm your host, Jay Desai. We've all been in situations where we've looked at someone's title and thought, I wonder what that person does and what value does that role really add? So in the series, I endeavor to explore the granular details of various roles and of course, interact with the people behind the title. Also, we'd look at it from a perspective of how that title interacts with pre-sales as well. So welcome. So my guest today has been working in the channel space for more years than my entire IT career. I welcome Rob Evans. Rob has Hi. had a very long and adventurous career in IT across various organizations. His most recent title, Rob, is that of Channel Account Manager. In his career over 20 years, he has worked at Alcatel, Polycom, F5 Networks, and most recently, he is at Checkpoint Security. So welcome, Rob. As always, it is pleasure to talk to you. With that, I pass the mic to you for your version of your introduction. Thanks, Jay. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um... Haven't done too many of these uh, sort of podcast interview style things, but yeah, really looking forward to the chat. Um, yeah, so I guess, as you say, been working in channel now for a number of years. Um, my background, I've come out of sort of being originally sort of a network engineer um, and, uh, you know, working post-sales support um, back in the days of dial-up, showing how old I am, mate. But uh, yeah. <laughs> I've worked for mainly for vendors, lived over in London a couple of years and worked for an end customer there as a network and security administrator. Um, spent many, many years working in unified comms. Um, when I got back, um, more on the pre-sales side uh, and a solution architect. So quite a few, a lot of roles sort of on the technical side and then eventually sort of fell into the channel account manager role and have sort of been doing that ever since. So yeah, it's been a bit of a journey, um, but uh, here I am. Great journey. So I think just on that note, could you explain the role of a channel account manager or a channel manager? What does your day look like? Yeah, so I guess channel uh, channel account management is a bit of a supporting sales role. So obviously it's in the sales team. Um, really, uh, it revolves around sort of managing um, a set of channel partners. So many vendors or a lot of vendors, especially overseas vendors, they run a um, sort of a tiered model for, for selling to the market. So they tend to have salespeople that talk directly to end customers, but end customers can't buy directly off, uh, off the vendors. So they use, um, I guess, channel partners Mm-hmm. to to provide additional scale um, and and actually wrap services around the vendor's offerings um, and provide things like integration services, managed services, professional services. So my job is just essentially, I guess, looking after those partners, making sure they're enabled, making sure they understand our offerings, obviously track it, doing um, quarterly business reviews, um, tracking uh, deal registrations, um, making sure I'm doing 
marketing activities with them, doing channel events. Um, so anything to do, really anything to do with um, helping grow uh, the pipe, the sales pipeline with with my set of channel partners. Yeah. So I think you mentioned the word partners there and channels there. So what exactly is the difference between a channel or a partner? And I throw in another word, a distributor there as well. And do you work with all of them? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess channels just really a method that uh, businesses use to sell their goods and services, right? So it's just a, it's so, um, as I was mentioning, yeah, tech vendors tend to have um, a, a sort of an indirect sales channel approach. Um, so, um, and often when you get have an indirect approach, you can either have a one or a two tier sort of setup. Um, a lot of part, a lot of um, vendors have a two tier setup. I think especially if they're um, dealing with hardware, so they would have a distributor, which is sort of your wholesaler, um, and they can help obviously import the product and do freight forwarding and and uh, deal with like RMAs and returns, et cetera. And then right. under the distributor, you have obviously a, a set of, of channel partners, um, which are reseller or MSP partners that actually, um, you know, take your goods, wrap their services around and, uh, and, and uh, provide that the whole solution to the end customer. So that's sort of, um, that's sort of how it works. But yeah, I do work with both of them. Um, we do have a distribution manager who sort of more directly deals with the, the distributors and sort of the business plans and, and sort of helping them out. Um, right. But um, yeah, they're still an integral part, I guess, of the, of a channel manager's role because they can obviously help you access new channel partners, new resellers, new MSP partners. They have their own set of relationships um, and they, they can often field sort of a wider base of partners and help sort of get them sort of up, up to a certain level where then after then they'll be handed over to, to be a directly managed partner by that vendor. So they're sort of dealing with a, obviously the much wider base of partners um, and trying to sort of discover who's the next sort of prospect channel partner up and coming that, you know, we can work more closely with. So for the audience members who are not familiar with the terms we use here, could you please tell me what MSP actually stands for? Yep. <laughs> MSP is a, a managed service provider. Yeah. So, so yeah, so I guess um, what, what you've got, you've sort of got um, some, some partners that are more resellers. So they'll just take your products. Um, they'll add their margin on and just resell those to the end customer. Yep. But you can also have a situation, especially a lot of um, telcos, for example, um, or, or other partners that might actually use your product um, and then just provide it as a service. So they might actually right. so they'll retain have consultants. ownership of it. Yeah, they might they might retain ownership of it and sell it more as a service to the end right. customers. They might even white label your your kit so you know they may it may not even people may not even know they're using checkpoint for example or whatever vendor you represent and um you know it's just provided as a service and it may even be branded as their own brand so like a white label arrangement in that case the licensing terms of the software provider reside with the msp and the end customer only deals directly with msp would that be correct yeah that's right i mean that's that's pretty common right i mean the nice thing about that MSP style arrangement is, you know, typically they can, it's quite a sticky 
sticky solution for the end customer. So, uh, and, um, you know, those MSP partners can sometimes get a, a bit higher margin than just simply reselling something because as right. you can imagine, they can make a unique service that's a bit more differentiated. Yeah. Now, I think you've worked with both software companies and hardware companies. Now, I understand you mentioned it uh, in your explanation earlier, the role of a distributor for specifically a hardware company. But what, what changes for, for the word distributors or partner based on the type of the product? Say, for example, you're dealing with software. Do you need to deal with disties? If you're dealing with hardware, do you need to deal with channel? How does that dynamic work? Yeah, I mean, software definitely does change the game a bit. Um, you know, the role of the distributors, for example, becomes less about importing hardware and shipping it to site and dealing with RMAs. In, in a software land, like I guess they're just often providing things like the, um, ex, you know, the FX changing. A lot of vendors obviously have their products in US dollars, so they right. obviously often the distributors still helping out with that. Right. Um, they can help out, obviously track, you know, subscriptions across multiple partners. Uh, there'd still be obviously an element of reporting and tracking when subscriptions are expiring and different things. But um, definitely the distributors sort of need to look at, I guess, their, you know, how they provide more value in that software world. Um, and a lot of it becomes around sort of automation and, that reporting function and being able to sort of easily integrate into vendors um, sort of um, offerings in that space. Right. Um, so yeah, it does, it definitely does change the game. Um, I think some of the distributors are, you know, spending a bit of time trying to get their own digital marketplace sorted out right. um, and just trying to work out how they can add more value Um you know, because obviously they have to also compete with the the public cloud marketplaces who really? sort of have all that stuff very uh, very established. Um, so there is some danger there that some of the traditional distributors might uh, might get bypassed. Yeah. So one of the key learning for me there is that for the role of distributor in the software world, would one be of managing the FX or the foreign exchange? Because a lot of vendors or software companies are based in US. And when you yep. consume that software, say, for example, in Australia, uh, you'd have to convert that from USD into AUD and they help with that, amongst a lot of other tasks they provide. Yep. Now, yeah. Now, that's right. I have worked with a lot of channel managers in uh, my career so far, and all the channel managers have three favorite words. And those three favorite words being partners, partners, and partners. What is your favorite word, Rob? Commission, mate. <laughs> <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think um, obviously partners are key, right? The, if you're in a channel role, the partners are effectively my customer. So Sorry, I'm, like... I'm still laughing at your answer of commissions. But, <laughs> but I mean, everyone's in everyone's in sales to earn commission at the end of the day. Um yeah. But um, yeah, mate, yeah, it, it is about it is about the partners. It's about the relationships, um, understanding their business, understanding how they can make money, right? It's um, it's like all sales, mate. It's a contact sport. So yeah, partners are definitely key for me. <laughs> Absolutely, and I think uh, in my opinion, partners are key to any business's success as well. Now, what are the channel uh, challenges 
a channel account manager could face? And how do you prioritize the work items or the challenges you work with? Yeah, the, the the big one I find in channel management is just obviously gaining mind share. I mean, I, I'm working obviously for a security vendor these days um, and security is a hot topic, which is great, um, but um, there's a million security vendors out there. So, um, you know, one of the challenges is just trying to gain mind share with the channel partners um, mm -hmm. because, you know, unlike direct sellers who are going out positioning your brand, the channel partners have a choice of which vendor to work with, um, which one to sort of include in say their MSP offerings or which one they're going to um, include in their architecture or design or put forward for a customer. So getting that mind share is, um, can be a bit of a challenge. <laughs> um, and and um, I guess the extension of that is, you know, just, relevancy with the wider channel organization depending on if you're not say one of the really large vendors mm -hmm. then you may not have access to dedicated alliance people at a channel partner you may not get mind share right. with marketing resources at the channel yeah. partner so you know that limits your ability to sort of execute on you know you have to try and think of other novel ways to execute on things like joint marketing or, you know, engagement with customers or what have you. So, yeah. Combining the efforts. Now, yep. talking about combining efforts, uh, the next question I have for you is, what sort of scenarios would be touch point for pre-sales or solution architects of the world to interact with a partner account manager? And when would you reach out to say someone like a solution architect within uh, you work at work at and how would you provide them direction yeah management of course yeah so i mean when it comes to engaging with the the channel partners i guess you know obviously the key sort of places i'm going to engage with typically is around the sellers the sales people um and the sales management uh of, of the partner um but equally obviously there's pre-sales teams that are part of that wider sales team so the pre-sales people at the partner um, are obviously a critical layer um, right. architects obviously um, that are part of that as well um, they're they're often building those solutions so i guess the the touch points for the vendor pre-sales people is obviously those those equivalent sort of roles at the partner um, and really, you know, I obviously try and engage with them at the management level um, on the pre-sales side as well um, right. and uh, and try and create those connections and, and I'll look towards, you know, our own pre-sales people to try and help introduce them into, into those and help obviously organise some enablement and um, get them across, I guess, the, you know, the vendor products and 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 offerings but yeah it's um it's a really critical one actually which i think is a bit overlooked <laughs> if i'm going to be honest um that pre-sales layer engagement i think maybe i'm quite conscious of it because i've come i spent a lot of time in pre-sales and know how important that role is in the world mate so uh yeah pre-sales folks get dragged left right and center all the time they do they do it's really hard especially you know not all vendors have you know dedicated channel pre-sales people either so True. you know you're borrowing other pre-sales resources 
um, to be able to do some of that work. So yeah, it's a it's a it's a great role, but yeah, very critical as well. Yep. Really. Now, Rob, I'm going to try and rewind the clock a bit here. Could you please take the audience through on how and where your career started in IT? Okay. Um, if I want to go right back, it would probably it'd probably be in about, I don't know, grade four or something like that. I remember playing with a... Um, the, my primary school had a couple of computers. They just got them and they were like Spectrum ZX80s, I remember. And I created this <laughs> I created this little ski game and it was basically like, it was all text, right? So it was like dots <laughs> or Xs, Xs to make the track and it was sort of randomly generated. I remember typing it all in in basic or whatever it was. Um, that's That's probably where it started. And then, yeah, just over time, we had a home computer eventually, which was like an Apple IIe. And my, my dad brought home, like started bringing home sort of IBM, you know, IBM compatibles of various sorts with, you know, monster, <laughs> monster things with like floppy disks and everything. So that's probably, probably where I got the interest. Um, and then, yeah, when I, when it finally came time to, to look around for a job, I, I took a, a graduate role um in uh in networking in like ip networking and i was lucky enough that the the first place i worked which was alcatel um yeah put me on some training courses and learn about ip networking and stuff and it all sort of started from there mate yeah lance wants and subnets <laughs> exactly yep exactly. But i'm curious your dad bringing home the first ibm for you but was your father into technology as well not really. He he was his background sort of like an accountant, um, so he was using it more as a, just a tool. Mm. Yeah, but I I was just I was sort of fascinated by this thing. I was like, oh yeah, I could, pro you know, once I started to work out, you know, I could make it do things with basic and that. I was, yeah. So I'm, at one point, I was thinking maybe I'd become a programmer or something like that. But I, for work experience, I I um did some work experience for for a friend when I was in school and it turned me off programming because I was just in front of the computer I had to I had to translate something from like COBOL to Fortran or vice versa and they just dumped these huge manuals on me and said translate this program from one language to the other so they could run it on their mainframe or something and I was just like this is a nightmare I came away like a zombie I'm like nah coding's not for me so very quickly you figured out what you did not want to do in it exactly mate exactly so i'm going to fast forward a bit there and ask you what was your first job in it and what would you describe as the key takeaway from the very first job you had yeah i mean i would say um yeah, so the first job was sort of providing um, escalation support and it was back in the days of dial-up. So uh, if you remember like dial-up dial internet, dial-VPN uh, dial services. T2, T2, the modems. Exactly, remote workers, exactly. So I was sort of looking after on the, not obviously, you know, obviously there's dial-up problems, but I was representing the vendor with the, all these um all these uh, modems, all these people dialed into, obviously. So on the service provider side, there was obviously a big bank of modems that everyone dialed into. So, um, but yeah, I think, you know, some of the learnings from 
you know, me entering into the the field was, as I was saying, I, I think it's good if you can get into a larger company that support you with a bit of training um, in the field that you want to go into. Um, some companies offer sort of grad rotations and things. I know Telstra does that. Um, and, and that gives, I guess, you a bit of exposure to different different areas. I, I didn't have that in my company, but they did provide um, some formal training, which was great. And, you know, put me in a team with obviously much more senior escalation engineers and people doing support. Um, and you obviously learn a lot from, from those people. So um, obviously really good to network in. Um, and I guess hopefully you can find a mentor. You can obviously request a mentor as well. Right. And, and normally most companies will sort of pair you, pair you up with someone as a bit of a mentor who's a bit more senior. And yeah, you just, yeah, it's that time where you're just trying to really learn as much as you can, right? Learn how the world works and learn how to, you know, for me, it was about like, you know, how do you troubleshoot things, process of elimination, being methodical and right. and that whole thing. Um, so yeah, learn a, learn a lot in those first few years. Sounds like you've set the basics right for a perfect career to follow. Now yeah, I mean, it helps, mate. It helps if you've got that foundation. Yep. Absolutely. So I'm sure you've seen that transition in the industry firsthand, all the way from mainframes to the virtual machines, the containers, distributed clouds, and most recently, the chat GPTs of the world. So when you were evolving, like just around the time of, of your first job and whatnot, what were the challenges in the traditional computing days, which you faced? Yeah, I mean... Back in the days, I remember, you know, we, I had, you know, things were a lot more constrained in terms of, you know, RAM and, and uh, you know, disk size and stuff. So even simple things like getting, you know, I remember trying to get network drivers and mouse drivers to load properly into like PCs and they had this stupid 640K limit, you know, and it wouldn't, you you had to sort of, do some voodoo magic to get things actually to load. It just literally, it, if you didn't sort of configure it right, it, you know, you'd load the mouse driver and all of a sudden your network drive wouldn't load or something like that because there wasn't enough, there wasn't enough RAM there to 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 load it. So there was definitely some stuff like that. Um, you know, obviously a lot more constrained with resources nowadays. You know, there's endless disk space, endless cloud storage. Um, endless RAM is so cheap. So it's pretty different scenario. Um, in the networking world, I remember, you know, we used to have the coax cables that were all sort of bus sort of style right. network and you would forget to put one little terminator on and the whole network would go down and stuff the like disc that. disc drives. So, <laughs> yeah, the old floppy disks, you know, very, um, again, pretty constrained of what you could be exactly fit on one of those if you got like a 360K or, a, you know, 360K floppy disk. Remember, I think when I said it, the word... You had to flip them over, right? Remember yeah. that? You had to flip them over. To now, really what I'm thinking of when I said the word disk drive, I was thinking in my head the word tape drives and I've seen them in action. Flunky <laughs> oh, little things, those tape drives for backups. The only That's... time I used a tape drive, mate, was on my my cousin's uh, Commodore 64. <laughs> <laughs> it took forever okay. to load games. I remember that. <laughs> so how, in your opinion, have the challenges evolved in the technology industry? And what do you think are the current challenges? Yeah, I mean, 
it's pretty interesting stuff going on nowadays, right? Yeah, I mean, everyone's probably seen the the chat GPT and open AI and that that quick yep. transition that, you know, how long ago? It wasn't that long ago. No one was really talking about it. And all of a sudden there was a step change. All of a sudden it became, you know, pretty uh a step change in its capability and then all of a sudden everyone's talking about it everywhere and using it and um that's a, a pretty interesting uh pretty interesting thing um i guess from a security aspect you know it's also a little bit scary because um you've got something there that can obviously generate um you know code obviously but also things like phishing emails um it's just going to make it so much easier for people that really don't necessarily have you know a lot of smarts around computers or or uh you know coding to be able to you know unfortunately design you know or or design malware or or send phishing emails or whatever it might be so you know, I think that's a big factor. I think AI and machine learning, obviously, on the defense side is going to become um, much more prevalent. Um, but also things like just, you know, attack surface, you know, the the, the attack surface has changed a lot in cybersecurity mm -hmm. as well. You know, you, you've sort of moved from what was probably if you remember the days where everyone just went to the office and they're just sitting behind a, a firewall and you've got sort of a pretty fixed perimeter um, to obviously people running things in cloud, um, spinning up new things all the time um, and, and workers obviously spending, you know, three, four days at home. You know, and some like, people forget to turn off things that spin up in cloud. Well, exactly that as well, right? So it's, you know, it's just visibility of what you've got running is half half your challenge and making sure the guardrails are there. But ju I just think about, you know, you can imagine the perimeters no longer, you know, people are all over the place. People are working from mobile devices. There's BYOD trend here as well. So, you know, it's, this is also becoming your new sort of your new yeah. battleground. I think a lot of people just think about, oh yeah, I've got my, my work laptops all secure, so I'm good. And next thing you know, people are downloading files and doing everything on a mobile device and they've completely forgotten about it. So it's, uh, yeah, it's I think it's we interesting. are continuously dropping digital crumbs every time your mobile phone connects to a new tower. Every time you move, you're dropping digital crumbs. So I think that is a real challenge. Well, well called out. Yeah. So I think uh, with COVID and whatnot, we've all been in challenging and creative situations. But if I was to talk to you, if I was to ask you about a embarrassing or a funny incident, which you can think of probably at work or a work trip or your recent past, what would that be? So <laughs> I'm not going to believe you. This didn't, this wasn't actually me who did this, but I remember working at a, at a company a while back. I, I won't get too detailed on it, but I remember seeing someone who worked there just head into a meeting room by himself and I'm like what is this guy doing it's very strange he's sort of in the meeting room for a while then eventually he's come out and he didn't it didn't appear to be on the phone or anything I'm like what what is he doing um and then uh, you know a few minutes later someone went to use the meeting room for their actual meeting and what he'd done is he just gone in there crop dusted in there oh no <laughs> <And> <laughs> while, 
closed the door behind him and exited. <laughs> and everyone was like, mate, you could have made it to the bathroom instead of just instead of just going to the nearest meeting room. So that was uh, that was sort of a funny situation. That is pretty, that is just pretty wrong. <laughs> pretty wrong as well. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of us have been guilty as charged of doing that. Hopefully <laughs> not in the meeting room, mate. Probably not in the meeting room, yes. So, uh, Rob, if you were not a tech professional, what would you be? Well, it's a tough one. I do like I do like my tech, mate. Um, I don't know. I, I think if I, I had endless money and and wasn't in tech, you know, there's a few I'd probably yep. few things I could do, like maybe like imagine a, you have endless money. Maybe like a skiing instructor. You know, Ooh. go somewhere nice and teach people to ski. That'd be fun. Or or just a teacher in general. I think teaching, you know, my sisters are teachers. I think that's an interesting, interesting profession. You know, Very teaching, the, I guess, the next, yeah, the next generation coming up. Um, maybe a small business owner. Maybe I'd, you know, go start a cafe somewhere and churn out coffees and stuff. <laughs> um, that That's sort of some things that come to mind, like some something entrepreneurial maybe. Yeah, yeah, man, a lot. So, uh, if you weren't a tech professional, a tech professional, I'm sure you've you've already got it figured out. So you, <laughs> the plethora of professions you could have chosen from. That is I would not yeah. have picked ski instructor as your first choice. So. Ski instructor, yeah, might be a little bit harder once you've got the family in tow, mate. But yeah, <laughs> but so talking about teaching and instructing, what would your coaching be for? young professionals who are listening to this and who want to start a career in IT, what would your guidance for them be like? Yeah, I think, I think um, just, ha I guess, have a, have a look at who's got those good sort of formal grad programs. Mm -hmm. um, what sort of companies offer, I guess, the flexibility. You mentioned um, rotation earlier. Grad yeah. rotation's a big right. one. I think that that really helps, gives you exposure to a bunch of different areas if you're not exactly sure what area of IT you want to be in, because it's obviously a huge, you know, massively wide field. Um, but it's obviously good if you have a bit of an idea of what sort of grabs you in IT, like, or what doesn't grab you. Sometimes it's more mm -hmm. important to try and identify what doesn't grab you. Um, sort of I'd sort of worked out I didn't want to do coding and I remember when I had that decision I was saying okay I either go down maybe web design mm -hmm. at that time everyone was getting into building obviously the HTML and CSS and what yeah I thought oh maybe that's it a little bit like coding but not quite as hardcore as like C programming or, or something so I was thinking I'd go maybe web design or um networking now i chose networking. get your foot into it just to get your foot in yeah sort of which sort of area but yeah now there's a there's a lot of breadth right cyber security is obviously a really big growing field i mean probably probably have a look at you know where the demand is for jobs and and um you know ha have a look i guess where there's a shortage um and and what you think is going to be sort of around for a while maybe don't go to be like a mainframe <laughs> programmer <laughs> or something. I mean, cloud and security are obviously really, really big growth areas that are sort of here to stay. Um, yeah, and then just try and identify a company that's going to sort sort of support you as a graduate, give you the training, and and um, 
you know, give you the flexibility to try a few different things if maybe the first thing's not uh, not uh, ticking all the boxes for you. Yeah. Perfect. Look, Rob, with that, I could keep talking to you for hours at, at a stretch, but we should come to an end. What I've done is I've included your LinkedIn details in the description for anyone wanting to get in touch with you and you can please provide them some guidance and coaching. That'd be awesome. For sure. the audience members listening to this podcast, please provide us your feedback on how we went. Was it really interesting? What more could we have added? What more embarrassing questions we could have asked Rob? And how could we do better? But until next time, thank you very much. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Joe.